you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to um, Joshua chapter 2. I don't have it before me, but I think that's around 3.30-ish in your bulletin, I mean your uh, pew Bible. It's in your bulletin if you'd like to find it there. Uh, Joshua chapter 2, it's this great story of Rahab. And uh, here we find that no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the forgiveness purchased by his blood. The change is always possible. Not as we just change our behavior, but as that Christ changes our hearts. And as a good tree bears good fruit, the Lord has transformed us as those who had cold, stony hearts and given us new ones that beat after him. And he's given us his spirit that we might walk in his ways. And it is of a very um, public sinner that we read today whose great faith is perhaps greater than all the Israelites we've read thus far and perhaps the rest of Joshua too. She is one who had been transformed by the grace of God. And it's the same grace that invades our hearts and changes us too. Let's read Joshua 2 together. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. The gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings, the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window 
through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of doors or out of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days. And the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, in this time, by your spirit, may we meet with you. May we feed upon you. Lord, give us eyes to hear. Excuse me, eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that we may be nourished and changed. Give us anointing, both the preacher and the hearer alike. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. This morning, I want to tell you the story of Rahab, the prostitute. You'll remember that God's people were outside on the other side of the Jordan, having been wandering around for about 38 and a half years. They've been dying off one by one until all the men who were included in the census had been killed off because of the unfaithfulness of the first spies who had been sent into the land to spy it out. They were waiting and they had begun to receive their marching orders from the Lord their God. And so it was time to send in another set of spies. Interestingly enough, there are only two and not twelve. Two were sent from Shittim, sent over the Jordan to spy out all the land, but especially Jericho, the text says. Now, given this is only a three-day journey, it seems that they went straight to Jericho. This was the large fortress town in, the, uh, in that part of the, the promised land, the first fortress they would come up against, they'd have to defeat. We'll read of that in Joshua chapter 6. You know, if you were to go into a town or a city and wanted to spy it out, to learn what kind of soldiers uh, were there, were garrisoned there, what kind of king they had, how many people lived there, how well the front door was bolted, where would you go? Where would you go? Perhaps you would go to a place where a lot of people would congregate after work. Perhaps a place um, with drinks that might loosen the lips a bit. A place where you could hide out in the corner and seek to get a little bit of tasty information uh, as it passed over someone's lips. It is to this sort of place that, that the spies went. When we read that they went to the house of Rahab and lodged there, many commentators believe that from the Hebrew that's used here, this is talking not just about her personal house, this is talking about some sort of inn or tavern where they had gone hoping to get a little bit of information. I was reminded of a scene from The Lord of the Rings this week as I was preparing. If you've seen the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the very first in the trilogy, or perhaps read the book, you'll remember that the hobbits, after leaving the Shire, the Shire they went straight to a tavern called the Prancing Pony. 
And here they were meant to meet Gandalf. But soon they found that too much alcohol leads to loose lips. They get in a lot of trouble. And it is this sort of place that the spies went, hoping that somebody would say something that would give them some intelligence they could take back to their brothers across the Jordan. This place was apparently owned and operated by Rahab, who had a different profession on the side. She was a prostitute. But perhaps by the mention of her whole family, we read uh, later in the text that perhaps it was family-operated. Perhaps it was a family affair. But you know, just like in the movie, The Lord of the Rings or the book, just like the hobbits stuck out like a sore thumb amongst, you know, they were itty-bitty-bitty like this tall amongst the, uh, the normal-sized people. They were hard to miss. So apparently to these spies who had been sent secretly, according to the text, uh, they stuck out as a sore thumb too. Remember that uh, God had caused their clothes not to wear out, so perhaps they're wearing styles that were in style 40 years ago. Or perhaps they used a different language, which they most certainly did. Perhaps they carried themselves differently or didn't greet in the right way. But, but everybody knew who these people were. We'll see from time, time after time as we look at Joshua, the Israelites were not exactly good warriors and apparently they weren't very good spies either. Because not only did Rahab know who, who these uh, spies were, these two spies, but the king did too. Rahab didn't tell him. Apparently someone else was in the the tavern and and saw these people and said, oh no, we know who these people are. Well, before the king could get word, she took these two spies and she hid them on the roof underneath stacks of flax. And it's interesting actually that the time of year flax wasn't meant to be come in, uh, wasn't meant to be harvested in this season. God had providentially provided a bumper crop or, or something else to allow flax to be stacked on her roof. And so when the king's men came, these men were nowhere to be found. But here we enter into a part of real tension in our, in our text, don't we? Because how, how does God protect these spies from being killed? It was through Rahab's lie. This is a, this is a messy text, and there's, there's plenty of tension in this text. What should we think about her lie? When the king's men come, they say, send out, send out. Uh, these men who came in to spy out the land. They say who they are and what they've come to do. And what does she say? Oh yeah, they came in, but, but they've gone. In fact, I mean, she lays it on thick here. In fact, if you hurry, you can catch them. So she sends them along the way. What are we to make of, of her falsehood? What are we to make of her falsehood? You know, I don't want to spend much time on this because the text doesn't spend any time on this. And the three times we find in the New Testament where it's mentioned, no one ever brings up her lie. You know, could we say that it was a time of warfare and deception is an appropriate means in warfare? We'll see that later in uh, Joshua um, 7 or 8, the battle of Ai, where deception is used. We just don't know. Lying's a sin, right? Lying is a sin, ninth commandment. Perhaps these men didn't have right to this information. Perhaps uh, as we think about the age-old ethical question, if you were hiding Jews in the Holocaust and two SS soldiers showed up at the door saying, are you hiding Jews, what would you say? Do you have a greater duty to, uh, to the preservation of life? Or is, the li- is life itself even the highest uh, 
goal as these brothers and sisters in Christ who were killed in Oregon this week. They didn't lie. They didn't lie. And they faced the consequences. So whatever we are to think about this falsehood, um, we certainly see that God used it for his glory and for the good of his people. Because they believe the falsehood and they leave. And after the falsehood is given, after this, uh, um, this red herring is offered to these soldiers, then she goes up to the roof again. And she has this really interesting interaction with the, uh, the Israelites, the, these two spies. And we are meant to see the contrast between Israel's um, disobedience over the last several generations, and indeed their disobedience that will come when they come into the promised land, juxtaposed to her obedience and to her amazing faith. And she throws her life in, and she throws her lot in with Yahweh, the King, the God of the Jews, and the God of the universe. We'll unpack her statement uh, towards the end of our time this morning. But she throws her lot in with these people. They enter into a covenant. She is now an Israelite, though she lives in Canaan. She is now a Hebrew, having been engrafted in, having declared who she, she believes in, turning and forsaking all others that, that she might look to for help. What would have happened to her if the king had found out? We would not even want to speculate. And so she enters into a covenant with them that she won't tell if they, don't, if they promise to protect her when they come in, all of her family, her father's house, her, her brother's house, that as long as they're in the tavern, in her house, they will be protected if they give this sign, this scarlet cord, outside the window. And so the spies scurry off and they hide out in the hills until three days have passed, until the pursuers have come back into the gates of Jericho. They may be on the guard now, but they have not found the spies And they return back to Joshua and they give the report that the original spies were supposed to in the very first instant. What do we read here? We read, they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The first spies had melted away because the inhabitants and now having heard what God has done, the inhabitants of Canaan melt because of what God has done for his people. In our time this morning, I'd like to look at this character, Rahab. For it is here that we see that no one is beyond the grace and forgiveness of God. No one. No one is beyond the grace and forgiveness and transformation of God. Whom did God use when he was sending his people into the promised land? The least likely of all candidates, a prostitute. Whom did God use to to see his kingdom furthered amongst the Gentiles? One who was seeking the death of his people, Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Whom did God send to provide and to achieve salvation? It was the son of a carpenter. God uses um, the unexpected to achieve his goals. But here we see that God uses a woman in outright, open, flagrant sin and calls her to salvation and changes her and gives her a new heart, forgives her of her sin and uses her for his glory, for the good of his people. 
No one that we know is beyond the grace of God. Not a 98-year-old great-grandmother who had left a a great path of, of consequences, of collateral damage, rather, amongst her family because of her hard heart. But on the day before she died, she came to know Jesus. Not a father who didn't become a Christian until he was in his 30s and led to revival in the household. These are my stories. Not a drug addict. Not a repeat offender. What are your categories? What are our categories for those whom we think that that are beyond God's grace? No one is beyond the transforming grace of God because we have to start with ourselves, right? That who was Rahab? She was a vile, wretched sinner. Who were we before Christ saved us? We were vile, wretched sinners. Our sin may have looked differently. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that Rahab's had certainly fallen short of the glory of God. But God hadn't written her off. She was one of his elect. She was one of of whom Christ died. She was not only a, a vile, wretched sinner like we were, she was also an enemy of God and his people. Think about this. She, was, she lived in the very wall that would fortify God's enemies in Jericho. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, Romans 5. We were his enemies. We were in such sin. Yet God has transformed us. And he has forgiven us. And he has given us grace. We have these categories of of folks that we wonder if God's grace will ever reach. Perhaps it is a lost person for whom we have prayed for decades. Perhaps it is someone whose sin is very flagrant and open. Can God's grace change them? Yes. Can anything else change them? No. Can anything else change us? No. Only God's grace. Perhaps it is those who are believers. Perhaps a spouse we're married to. Perhaps a child, a wayward child. Perhaps a cousin or friend who has patterns in his life that we just, we pray for transformation or transform that person. Can God transform them? Yes. We mourn as those, but not as those without hope. We cast our eyes upon our Savior, the one who gives us the faith to look upon him and believe that he is in the business of transforming lives like Rahab and lives like mine. Or perhaps even ourselves, do we think that we're beyond God's grace? Is there something in your life you've tried time and time again to stop? Or some sin that you fight daily with? You think, surely I am beyond God's forgiveness. Could Rahab? If Rahab was not beyond God's forgiveness, if I am not beyond God's forgiveness, then certainly none of us are beyond God's forgiveness. He has taken our sins and he has thrown them as far as the east is from the west. And they have gone far away, out of his mind. 
Because Christ has died on the cross for us. He died on the cross for Rahab. He died on the cross for us that we too might receive his transforming, forgiving, life-altering grace. And when God works in our lives and he gives us this life-altering, transforming, forgiving grace, he works into our heart a kind of faith that is vibrant, that will even stand up to a question, what do you believe and for what would you be willing to die? Are you a Christian, yes or no? The shooter asked this week. Are you a Christian? Right here in America, martyrs for the faith. There will only be more. Some of them less obvious. See, Rahab had an all-in faith. We must know that she had an all-in faith, a, a, a no-hedging kind of belief or faith, because what would happen if the king heard about what she had done? Like we say in our wedding vows, forsaking all others. This is what she did. Everything she'd ever grown up with, everybody she knew, apart from her family, were slated for destruction. We're going to talk about this when we get to Joshua chapter 6. This is called the ban, or harem warfare, in which, uh, which everyone was killed, regardless of gender or age. This is God's judgment. Forsaking all others, she threw her lot in with God. We see this, uh, as as many commentators have broken this up, uh, we see her faith in action, we see her faith in word, and we see her faith's legacy. Having been transformed by God's grace, she has this all in faith as we see by her actions. Even as she threw or tied the scarlet cord outside of her window, what would have happened if someone asked, what's that scarlet cord out hanging out your window? Or what if someone had seen her hide these spies on the roof? These weren't large cities. Anybody could have seen her. What would have happened if someone had seen her lowering them out the window? Perhaps a guard on duty. Perhaps someone who had missed the gate before it was closed. This was an all-in kind of faith. She was putting her life on the line. Just as times of transition are times of ripe for fear, we are called not to fear. Just as times of transition, as we talked about last week, are times for obedience. How do you think we don't have fear? How do you think we we obey? It is from faith. As some lives have been transformed by God's grace, as he gives us the gift of faith, and as we rely upon God through faith, he gives us the grace not to fear and to obey. She fears God. She believes in him strongly. And therefore, she puts it all on the line for her God. We also see it in her words. This, this, this confession she makes in verses 8 through 11 is just it's staggering. Notice the, the word for God she uses here, the Lord, if you have it, well, we're all reading English translations. Uh, the, the English translation renders it capital L-O-R-D, all caps. And as we know, that's the, the word for, for Yahweh. Of all, the pan, of all the gods in the pantheon of, her, of the Canaanites that they believed in, she says, God has a name. And it's not Baal. It's not Asherah. It's Yahweh. And while Baal and Asherah, these, these so-called gods, may have some sort of uh, so-called power over certain territories or, or parts of life, what does she say about this Yahweh? He is God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. 
He is not limited by territory. He's not limited by trial. He's not limited by drama. He's not limited by sin. He's not limited by something that we say is an intractable situation. Our God works miracles. He is God. Her heart and the hearts of those in Jericho had melted because of what God had done for his people. These great Amorite kings, Og and Sihon, they had been killed. And she accepted as a fait accompli, a a finished fact, that God owned her land that she lived on and she grew up in. This doesn't belong to me or my people. This belongs to your God. And I understand you're about to take this land and it's going to be yours. It belongs to your God. I'm in with you. Oh, that we would have such faith. We believe, help our unbelief. Her legacy is a great one. James chapter 2, we read of the example of her faith. James brings her her example up as this is what uh, works flowing from faith looks like. We find it too in in Hebrews 11 amongst the, the great hall of faith, amongst the giants of the faith, like Moses and Abraham. And here is Rahab, the transformed, forgiven prostitute. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But perhaps greatest of all, we find her in one of those lists that we skim over. Matthew 1. And Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Rahab was in the line of Jesus. See, God not only transforms sinners like you and me and Rahab, he uses them for his glory. Those who have been transformed by God's grace might lead others to the name of Jesus through whom our lives are transformed. And this king and savior who was in the line of Rahab, he came to save sinners like you and me and Rahab. He came that we might be washed in his blood, receive the forgiveness of our sins and have eternal life. How do I know that? Because he saved me. He has transformed me. He can transform you. We see that here at the table this morning, his transforming blood that was shed for us that we might have the forgiveness of sins and freedom from them. Let's pray. But Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins purchased by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh Lord, that we would have the faith like Rahab. Lord, calls us to cast our eyes once more upon our Savior that we might believe more strongly. It is in his name we ask it. Amen.